In this episode of the Trajectory Africa Track 8, my guest artist is Agosa Moigui. Agosa is the founder and managing general partner of Echo VC Partners, a seed and early stage technology venture capital firm investing in underrepresented founders and underserved emerging markets. Echo VC's portfolio includes Hotels NG, Cellulins, Life Bank, Frontier Car Group, and Grow Intelligence. Prior to Echo, Agosa worked for Intel and in his last role served as the Director of Consumer Internet and Semantic Technologies for Intel Capital. A Kaufman Fellow, Agosa is also engaged with organizations that support women founders and angel investors, such as Astia, where he's on the Venture Advisory Board, and Rising Tide Africa, where he's a board member. In this conversation, we're shifting the focus from key drivers of African VC opportunities to how funds capture these opportunities. To jumpstart this journey, Agosa and I discuss why consumer marketplaces are hard to exploit, what it actually takes to return a $50 million fund, spoiler alert, it may involve 10 paystack exits, why ownership and valuation heavily influence fund economics, and why investing in women, among other variables, is a key element of portfolio construction. Then we'll conclude with a case study of hypothetical Ghanaian fintech, Mula Mountain, to help us understand how exits impact fund performance. I hope you enjoy the show. Agosa, good afternoon and welcome to the Trajectory Africa. It's really fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Really excited to be here. Very excited to have you. So this conversation was inspired by a comment you made during the Chasing Outliers launch webinar. I'll link the report in the show notes. At some point during the dialogue, you pointed out that Paystack's $200 million acquisition by Stripe, while presumably lucrative for many investors and great for the ecosystem, would probably still leave the average fund manager searching for more exponentialized returns. Hearing that made me want to unbox the exit path, or more precisely, the expectations and decisions that inform a startup's path to a wildly profitable exit from the perspective of a VC. So that's what we're going to do today. Are you ready? Ready to do it. Okay, great. So with that being said, Agosa, could you please explain why you founded EchoVC, what your thesis is, and what constitutes the core of your conviction about the size and quality of African venture opportunities? And if you could touch on while you explain that, why you're positioning Echo as the Sequoia capital of emerging markets, why the four pillars of your thesis constitute fertile ground for exponential consumer-based VC opportunities, And lastly, why your firm is called Echo, because you mentioned during the Chasing Outliers webinar that you're in the business of finding secrets via sonar. And so I probably erroneously assumed that those two things were connected. Sure. So lots of questions. And why don't I just kick off with sort of the foundational question, why we call the firm Echo VC? And yes, we are inspired by essentially the construct of sonar or echolocation. And, and fundamentally, that provides the ability to map and navigate directionally in darkness and or deep water. And so our view was that the markets that we're most interested in when we started 10 years ago were markets that to many people look like the deep sea where almost no light shows up. And, and there's a fair amount of very interesting physical topography there, whereby you could sort of run into things and crash or not. <laughs> right. right. And so EchoBC was essentially christened with that name as the path to figuring out sort of directional mapping and navigation. And the other element of that was that our focus was on discounted and underestimated emerging markets. And within those discounted and underestimated and dark emerging markets, so to speak, we were also interested in underestimated founders and discounted founders. What people now sort of describe as underrepresented founders, which of course those two things coalesce very nicely. So so that was sort of the, the background to the naming convention. So your second question is why we're positioning EcoVC as a Sequoia Capital of Emerging Markets. There's a really, really simple thing. You know, when I was at Intel Capital, I was fortunate enough to occasionally running to Sequoia, certainly the U.S. fund, and and I really admired them. Um, I admired them for a, a couple of reasons. They took their fiduciary custodian uh, obligations incredibly seriously. The second was that they were very, very disciplined about what they liked and what they didn't like. 
The third was they came to every investment with an absolute metric ton bundle of conviction. And the fourth was they never quit. And so our view was that if there was a firm that we wanted to sort of role model on, it'll be them. There is a fifth leg to Sequoia that I've also always admired, which is that it's the second half of the conviction construct, which is that from what I have heard, there's a significant amount of the money that the GPs, the general partners have, that goes into the funds. Mm. And, and I love that because if you ever question conviction, it is really that every check that gets written, it's not other people's money there's a fair amount of their money in it as well. And that's something we as a fund are very clearly going for. So that's really sort of how we thought about that construct. And so that's the key thing. And then I think the the final question, which if I recall correctly, was how we thought about the thesis, right? And the four pillars. A lot of the backstory to that was really sort of driven around spending several years observing the market. So there are different ways to drive investing activity and investing strategy in the VC firm. There's a fair number of firms that are just fine with looking for high quality entrepreneurs and reacting to deals coming through and deciding what deals to do. There's a fair number of them that are very clear about the types of deals they want to do, the sectors and or geographies, and they don't drift from those. So we are an interesting sort of blend because we're very thesis driven, right? But we're not completely stuck or driven by an adhesive to that. Right. We, we will sort of be a little bit flexible, but we are quite sort of thesis driven in the sense that we built the four pillars of our investing strategy around our observations and Seven years later, since we sort of kicked up the fund, those four pillars haven't changed very much, right? Those those key things, right? There's still a very significant amount of what I'll call startup value that can get created in organizing the offline in Africa. There is a very significant amount of, of value to be created in building products and services that eliminate and mitigate friction, right? You've seen this as well. In, in Lyft, where as you start to think about more and more ways to power household income and therefore household spend, what things can you do to that? We're still probably one, you know, you know, point five zeros and one percent of the way along in fulfilling <laughs> that opportunity. And then the final one we are thinking about this now was anti-fragility. Like one of the key things we observed in these markets was that they were built or have evolved to have a certain amount of resilience and maybe some quasi-level of elasticity. But one of the things that we see now is that as they're anti-fragile markets, in other words, the more disorder and chaos seems to show up, at least from the outside looking in, the more the markets seem to work. We're beginning to sort of question whether or not there is a possibility of too much anti-fragility. In other words... These markets can deal with disorder and can thrive with disorder, but at some point in time, do you get to the whole point of Hooke's Law where you get to a maximum point of elasticity and then it fails, right? And so we're trying to rethink that leg of it and trying to figure out, okay, so what happens when you you, you cross sort of the, the bounds of anti-fragility? Are there bounds of anti-fragility and what happens when you cross them? So those are sort of the four pillars that we started up with. As we're raising our next fund now, those pillars continue to be very important triggers. And we continue to be excited by by the types of companies we see, the types of opportunities, and really fundamentally the, the quality of the founders. Indeed. And so what's, I think, really instructive about how you've positioned your firm is it speaks very clearly to the idea that the opportunity is massive, but it is not obvious. And so there's a way in which you really have to, to your point, observe, you have to dig and you have to unsubmerge the opportunity. And so what I'm curious about here is 
why you would argue, and I'm 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 putting words in your mouth, and so if you <laughs> if you'd like to push back, please feel free. But I think I've heard you say that investors tend to shy away from consumer opportunities. And, and you believe there are consumer opportunities. So could you explain how these four pillars set up the foundation for consumer opportunities? So that's a good question. And one of the challenges, I think, when you chase consumer opportunities, and this is true for venture across the globe, is that venture-backed companies that go after consumer generally have to confirm one key prerequisite before they get started. And that is access to plentiful amounts of capital. <laughs> right. Because every consumer opportunity, and maybe, you know, even extending that to maybe enterprise, but every consumer opportunity certainly has a very fundamental construct, which is what everybody calls CAC. What is the consumer acquisition cost? What's the customer acquisition cost? Right. And at scale, that starts to really matter. If your SAM is 5 million people and it's going to cost you $20 to acquire each customer, then you're going to need to be able to have access to $100 million. Now, of course, you're acquiring each of the customers in that particular set, right, does not guarantee that you keep them. So it reminds me a lot of the olden days when e-commerce used to be hard. Maybe it's coming back now. But the older days when e-commerce used to be hard in Africa, and one of the fundamental disconnects we kept seeing with e-commerce companies was not just the cost of acquiring a customer, but the nested cost of reacquiring the same customer, which meant that retention models were broken, mm. churn was incredibly high, and these customers were what I'll call financially prudent. Right. Mm -hmm. They hunted for discounts and deals and had absolutely no loyalty to anything but the best price. Right. So when you think about that, and there's, of course, the classic trope that the African consumer doesn't have that depth of pocket right, and is also particularly financially prudent or fiscally sensitive, then you've got this issue where what does it take to acquire them and keep them? And then the other issue is, do, do we have enough of them at scale where the math works and the economics work? And that's a challenge with consumer businesses. So we see these businesses occasionally, but you would, you, you would find that a lot of the deals getting done tend to be small, medium and large enterprise facing businesses. Right. It's really interesting. So in conducting the Chasing Outliers research, we were told this quite a bit. So in trying to understand, and it's problematic to generalize key characteristics of consumers, we were basically told that they are price and utility sensitive. So I think there's a Fela Kuti or Femi Kuti song um, called Teacher Don't Teach Me Nonsense. And so I think the corollary would be like, a tech startup don't sell me nonsense. So you can't just say, because I think this is going to add utility to your life at a price that you can afford, that's actually going to be true. And in fact, because there's limited access to consumer credit, people can't afford to make decisions based on necessarily based on the long term. So they're deal hunting. And so if you're offering the deal today, they'll go with you today. But whoever's offering the deal tomorrow is going to be uh, the new customer. So it makes complete sense that from that perspective, consumer businesses would be very tough to crack. But now that we have a pretty clear understanding of your perspective as a GP, let's talk about how a fund manager institutionalizes or operationalizes conviction in the form of fund and portfolio construction. And you've kind of already leaned into this and in, in pointing out that a key aspect of conviction is investing your own dollars, your own Naira or what have you. But from the perspective of a layperson, there seem to be a large number of considerations for a fund manager, especially a first-time fund manager when it comes to fund design, anything from fund size, management fees, carry, how many investments you're going to make, how much you reserve for following on, the required rate of return, et cetera. But in your experience, which of these many key variables is the most important to get right? And how do you think about making the best decisions in those areas? And then also, if you like, how did you actually think about them when starting Echo? So that's a difficult question. I think if you consolidated it to its sort of core elements, 
it, it comes down to the obvious, which is the right size of check at the right stage into the right company. Mm. That's fundamentally it. Now, the underlying drivers for how you're able to do all of that, right? So there's a fair amount of it, to be candid, I'll tell you, there's a fair amount of it is luck-driven. But you can also sort of have some discipline, the discipline structure around what you're going to do so that you're prepared to be lucky. And how we've thought about it, and as I've taught classes to new managers and we mentor quite a few of the first-time managers, is that you always have to work from the answer to the question. Hmm. It will tell you everything you need to know about what you need to do. And so when you're thinking about raising a fund, let's just assume you're thinking about raising a fund, it's the example I've used because a lot of new managers are out trying to raise $50 million funds once in Africa. And so the example I always use is, no problem, you want to raise a $50 million fund. Do you know what it's going to take to return 1x of that fund? And by the way, when I use this example so that people understand where I'm going with this, I am not making adjustments for things like Forex volatility, devaluation, inflation. I'm not making any of those adjustments, which you have to. And of course, when you do that, it pushes a little bit further out the outcome that you need. Again, the answer that you need to the question that you have. So for instance, you have a $50 million fund. And what is the answer? The answer is how do I become a tier one fund manager compared to my peers, not in Africa, but my peers globally? Right. All right. And the reason why I, I highlight that is that there's one of the very best fund of funds out there. And they had reached out to us and we've had a conversation with them. And there was something that was really interesting that one of the folks there said, which was, for us, we're going to measure you against all your peers, not your peers doing Africa focused VC, all your peers. So if you come and you're telling me now that based on so what we see, you're a 4X fund, that puts you in the top quintile. That's really good. And so they're saying, look, if you're a 4X fund gross and you're shooting to get to be a 3X fund net, then that puts you in the top quintile. And we like that. But it was the first time where I sort of got a sense that I'm not competing. Like the people, the folks I'm competing with are... One can argue, is that fair or not? Because the folks I'm competing with are playing in markets that have exponentially much larger outcomes. Exactly. Right. But as we say, it is what it is, right? So you sit down, you go, okay, this is what I've got to do as a fund manager. So again, using the construct of working back from the answer, right, you've got a $50 million fund. And so the math essentially works out whereby you need to generate roughly around $500 million, give or take, to return 1x. Now, there's an argument, it could be 400, it could be 500, if you adjust for you know, devaluation and forex volatility. Yeah, but it's a 10-year period, so you really have to adjust. There'll be a very significant adjustment in forex. But you've got to return $500 million of enterprise value to return one times the fund. Right. So if you are going to try to get to and, and these numbers are insane, and that's why I don't want to scare people off. You know, so there is sort of a gross return and a net return. But if you are going to try to return 3x on that fund, you're going to have to generate north of $1.35, $1.4 billion in enterprise value. Wow. Which goes back to the original point you, you started off with when you pointed about what I said about the Paystack exit, which was fantastic. Fantastic team, lovely guys did really well, did great for the investors. Awesome. But if the investors were a group of angels and maybe some small funds and whatever it is, all right, nice. But if there was a $50 million fund invested in Paystack, that's, that literally was not the return. They would have done it. In fact, right. on quick math, right, we just did some very quick math. And if a fund manager at a $50 million fund size writing a million dollar checks, had done pretty much a static deal like that in Paystack, a million dollars, you get maybe you know 10% of the company, you don't adjust for dilution. They would, a fund manager would need roughly 10 of those deals. Wow. To, to hit this target return threshold. 
You need 10 pay stacks. That's incredibly sobering, <laughs> to say so, the least. Oh, this work is really difficult, right? And I think that's that's why when we, we, we talk about these things with new fund managers, we say there is a possibility here that one of the counterweights to what you're trying to do is to think about trying to raise smaller funds. And right. with a smaller fund, it's a lower threshold for you to get to create. And then, of course, you have this entire philosophy of how many at-bats, which is a baseball construct, which is how many times you come up to bat, right? And, you know, and one of the key things that people forget, whether it's a small fund or a mid-sized fund or a large fund, is that baseball Hall of Famers, right? Those who've gone to the Hall of Fame as hitters, if you were batting 300, you'd be 300. In other words, you're batting three out of 10 pitches. You would be at the very top of the crowd. Yeah, world-class, certainly. I mean, absolutely top of the universe, batting three out of 10. Like batting 300 is like mythical. And so I, you know, so, so it is when you think about what we do as investors, those are the kinds of things that you have to, you have to think about. And that's really, that's what you have to get right. So going back to the, what check size, what types of companies and the like, we, we tell folks, it is possible to invest in a company that can be country specific in its target market. And if you're getting early enough, it starts generating enough revenues whereby you can see a material return. But for you to increase your chances, and this is always about probabilities, for you to increase your chances that that company is going to be significant enough for there to be a material return on a risk-adjusted basis, so country companies have a lower probabilistic chance of being there. Right. Cross-border companies do. And of course, being cross-border also helps in mitigating some of the downside risks like Forex and the like. So in, in many ways, you have to have a, have a very enterprise view, not just about, oh, I just want to do this deal. I want to do that deal. But how much is this deal going to likely return? When is it going to likely return? What are the things that it need to do to get to that probabilistic sort of return outcome? And you as an investor, what can you do to get to help get it to that point? Right. So you mentioned that it really comes down to right size check, right stage of company and the right company. So you touched on what makes the right company. In terms of right stage and right size check, what are important things to keep in mind in those two areas? So it really depends on what stage you want to focus on as an investor. And if you're doing seed investments, and by the way, there is also another variable, which is the valuations that you're entering these companies at. Mm. So if you're doing seed investments and there's a much greater probabilistic arc that companies get acquired for $100 million, $150 million, then every check you're doing, you're trying to figure out whether or not you can get for that stage, for that risk, 20 to 50x. Now, if it's 20x, which is the lower end of that targeted multiple, and you have a fund that wants to do $500,000 checks, and you're going to keep some money for reserve, if it's a $30 million fund, or let me go back to 50 because 50 is the thing everybody is looking for these days. So if it's a $50 million fund, you actually have $40 million to invest because you have to pay fees. Right. Right. So and then there's, you know, fund expenses and a bunch of things. So maybe it's even actually a little bit less. So what you then get is that the $40 million has to work harder than the 50 because $10 million of it went to fees, which means $10 million is not going to investments that could potentially drive returns. Right. Right. So you've got to sort of think about that. And then you now sort of take, okay, you know what? I want to sort of capture some reserves for the winners in a portfolio. And so maybe I'll take 30% of the reserves. But what you then find is that of the 50 that you started with, you end up with 28 to invest the first checks. Right. And you start to see the problem. So that 28 
every check that comes out of that $28 million pool has to work really, 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 really hard, really hard. So when you're writing, if you're saying, look, I want to do $500,000 checks, how many companies are you going to want to be able to invest in? Remember, you have $28 million, So let's just assume that you're going to invest in 50 companies, right? So every company you invest in, you're saying, look, this thing needs to do 20x. Now, what's interesting in that model is that 50 companies, $500,000, 20x, right? Not bad, right? Because you're sitting there going, I've deployed 25 million and I think I can return 500. By the way, right. you also remember what I said 500 will get you back to 1x. So you can't even use a 20x multiple for your checks in this thing because it doesn't get you into the carry. Right. So you literally have to be somewhere north of 60x. But let's just say it's 50x. All right. So 50x, 25, 25 million. So, okay, great. No problem. That means that we can get to a 1.25 billion. All right. Now we're, now we're thinking. This is now we're on the trajectory where as a fund, we can stand tall against our global peers. So you're going to do 50 deals. You're going to write $500,000 checks. And your assumption is that every deal you do will generate 50x. Wow. But we all know that that's not possible. <laughs> because if it was, I'd just come straight to you to be like, look, I'm buying a whole set of lottery tickets and I need you to tell me what numbers to play. <laughs> exactly. All right. But this is what you have to do as a manager. So all your deals, your 50 deals, you're like, there's going to be a 100% hit rate and they're all going to do 50x, but it's not true. So you then now, you know, I think to the question you had asked before, which is, okay, so now that we know this, how do you design failure rates into that model? And then how do you design there's failure rates, there's graduation rates, there's steady state, there's a tread water, they're not doing anything. So this is where it starts to get interesting. So if you believe that you are an incredible picker of startups, then 50% of your 50 deals, maybe they fail. Because remember, at the seed stage, you're taking almost the greatest company stage, life cycle stage risk. Maybe pre-seed might be, might be certainly higher, but at the seed stage, you're taking the greatest level of risk. So because of that, there's a very interesting implicit failure rate. And so if you pick 50% of that as a failure rate, it then means that instead of the 50 companies that are going to return 50x, 25 of them pretty much have to return 100x. Hmm. So you're like, okay, that's cool. Let's see how that goes. And of course, if you have 25 companies on a 100x trajectory, I'm like, that's fantastic. But then let's go back to what we started up with, which is one of the key variables or levers to drive this is the entry valuation. Right. So if you are saying, I have half of my portfolio that will return 100x, then you're telling me that at an average entry price of 10 million, you're going to have 25 unicorns. Hmm. Hmm. And, and I'm thinking, you're not even Tiger Global. <laughs> you're, not, you're not Sequoia. You're not Andreessen. 25 unicorns. That's incredible. Now, here's the funny thing about venture, which I love. You could certainly laugh at the manager who says, oh, we're on, we're on, we're on path to 25 unicorns, right? So 25 billion apiece. But, you know, if you get one of those companies to get to 25 billion, those are your 25 unicorns. Mm, right, 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 right. Then you now ask, who's going to get to 25 billion first? The cash machine that is into Switch mm. is probably worth several billions. You know, Flutterwave and Chipper Cash and Fowey, these are sort of the publicly disclosed unicorns, right? 
we still have no idea what the exit value is. Right. Right. So there's still plays in progress. And so for you to be able to to do that as a fund manager, you, you will have had to be in all of those deals and you will have had to lean into all of them. And maybe you exit by the growth round. But again, these are all these sort of elements, not all, but certainly is a good number of them that when folks are like, I'm going to go out there and raise 50 million and do investing, and we honestly need more fund managers. I mean, it's the one thing I've complained about for years. We just, we need more. They're, they're just not enough. And it's broken across the stages. So mm. there's more folks coming in at seed. There's almost no one doing A's. There's almost no one doing B's. We just need more. But at the same time, the investors, the LPs, right, also have to trust that you've got to be able to deliver on, on the promise. And that's where it breaks down. Honestly, I mean, <laughs> it, it really just sounds like being an African VC is just, to put it lightly, it's not for the faint of heart by any stretch of the imagination. I think when you break it down by numbers and goals, it just seems like, wow, uh, why would I willingly say <laughs> spent 10 to 20 years of my life doing that. But to your point, we need people to spend 10 to 20 years of their lives doing that to get to the outcomes that we're, we're looking for. So you and others, I suppose, will have, to, will have to soldier on. But let's talk about the portfolio construction angle. So you as a fund manager have your marching orders, your targets. And so arguably how you build the fund in the portfolio is your way of building a machine to reach those targets. So from your perspective, what are the principles you need to keep in mind when deciding how to construct a portfolio? And maybe also, if it makes sense, are there trade-offs that have to be made as you make some of those decisions? Yeah, so I think there's, there are a few principles that we certainly keep in mind. This may not necessarily extend to everyone, but We'll just give you our own perspective. I think the most important one is diversity. Diversity in check sizes, diversity mm. in geographic exposure, and diversity in time and sector. So let's start with diversity in time and sector. So a lot of folks have gotten very, very excited about fintech, right? And globally, fintech is an extremely hot sector. And so what you find is more and more investors piling in, and, and usually when you have a sector where investors keep piling in, the founders react in very traditional ways. One of which would be to increase the prices mm, of the mm -hmm. assets, right? And so what you then find is as the prices of assets sort of go wild, so to speak, you, you change the arc, the arc and the end point of the outcomes that you need to make your investing decisions make sense and to drive positive outcomes and returns. So that's 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 a challenge, right? So what you then find as well, though, when you think about portfolio construction, which is I was talking about geo and sector diversity, is whenever a sector is super hot, it means there's a whole bunch of them that are not. And it also then means that founders who are in those other sectors struggle to raise capital. Right. And and so their assets are are essentially cheaper than say fintech assets. Right. And and so when you're thinking about diversity in your portfolio, you're also thinking about risk to the portfolio. And if you have very significant exposure to fintech, and if there's stuff that breaks down in fintech, and maybe it's some global malaise, I don't know, it's possible, not maybe, maybe not probable, but then that malaise will hit your, your portfolio very hard. So right. you need to think about multi-sector exposure, and that's how you think about construction. The other element of it is geography. So I think I mentioned this before, but a company that has single country exposure versus multi-country exposure, how do you think about that? You also think about diversity in the sense that, honestly, you think about gender when it comes to founders. And the reason mm. why is because we found it as well. I mean, I'll, I'll probably say this. We find women to be better CEOs and, and better allocators of capital. Interesting. And so 
it should be a fundamental underlying principle of portfolio construction that you invest in women. So that's how we sort of will think about these things. Uh, that comment about women CEOs, that needs to be said as loudly and as often as, as, as possible, for sure. Um, okay, so now that uh, we have the structural basics down, let's dive into the mechanics of engineering an exit for a particular company. So for the purposes of this discussion, we're going to use a thinly veiled hypothetical company called Moolah Mountain. So Moolah Mountain is an Accra-based fintech that enables businesses to accept payments via credit card, debit card, money transfer, and mobile money via their websites or mobile apps. And it was started by two locally educated founders in 2015 and three quarters. So Agosa, let's say you meet the Moolah Mountain founders, you know, relatively early in their journey after they'd taken on some seed capital and started to show some, some good traction. And you and your team like the founders and you think the business is solid, but you're trying to figure out whether the investment makes sense from a fun economics perspective. So Moolah Mountain looks good as an investment, but how do you determine Per the insights that you shared about fund and portfolio construction, how do you determine whether this is a good investment for your fund specifically? Okay. So there are different ways we approach the evaluation of these types of opportunities. And the first thing we have to answer as a team is, are these elite founders? Mm. And why we make that the, the required first question is that, the business we see today may not be the business that exits in five years. Mm, right. And so the primary lever for good to great outcomes always sits within the control of the founders. Right. And so that's why we always took that analysis of these elite founders. And you mentioned this, I think, at the beginning, which is our sort of mantra is we invest in secrets. And so these founders in your example are very similar to the kind of founders we like, right? We invest in internationally educated founders. We invest in locally educated founders. I think more so the locally educated founders, we like them a lot, what we call our local champions. They may not necessarily fit the look and feel of international investors, but we think their ground game is very strong. And so we like those as well. So how would we look at this? So First question is, is this an elite set of founders? And once you're able to do that, then you now start doing the entire analysis around the product, the market, the entrepreneur fit. All right. And once we get past that, then we now say, okay, great. So let's look at that intersection of the product and the market. Right. Is this a market that is a secret or it's not? Because what you also find is, Big markets attract a lot of attention. And, and generally speaking, if your competitor is super well-funded or doesn't come from your geography, but super well-funded, they can confuse the market. It doesn't mm. mean that they can win, but a lot of that capital can confuse the market. So we are spending a fair amount of time really trying to suss the market out, where it sits, who's buying, who's not, sales cycles, and the like. And then other analysis we're working through is where this company is, what is this funding they're seeking to raise? What risk are they looking to eliminate? Is this hmm. product risk? Is it market risk? Is it technology risk? What is it that they're trying to eliminate? Then, of course, you're also thinking downstream, which is for the next round, right? What would that look like? And what risk would they be trying to eliminate with that round of financing? So you're thinking through all these things, and then you're now saying, okay, let's now start to think about the business, right? What are the unit economics of this business today and at scale? What are the adjacencies? So if they have to pivot, hop, skip, and jump, pirouette, whatever it is that they need to do, then what? scenario planning. Mm. And then, of course, you're now going back and you're saying, okay, with this business, what do the revenues look like, right? And you're sensitizing a lot of this, right? So the founder is like, look, we're going to do 25 million next year. And you're like, you know, it's, it's only with Juju you're going to do 25 million because from where I'm sitting, <laughs> it's not going to happen, right? So you're, you're essentially doing all of that. And Eventually, you come to some conviction about 
where you think this company can be in the next two years or three years and really how they can perform. And based on that, you're now saying, okay, so we raised cash today, you limit one risk, you hit certain milestones. That's great. What does the next round look like? What do the investors at that next life cycle stage, what would they be looking for? And how much of a company like this raise and the like? And therefore, what is its path to $50 million in revenues? And you now say, okay, well, so why did you say 50 million? Because if you're looking at the end zone, in other words, what is the, what's a great outcome for this business? And you're saying, look, it's going to get acquired at $300 million, right? And they, if they hit this revenue sort of run rate in year five, they'll be in shape to get acquired for $300 million. You're like, okay, based on historicals in this sector, acquisitions are done for an 8x revenue multiple. So you're like, great, no problem. So... This company is sort of in that whole $35, $40 million in revenues to exit at 300. And so you pause and you're like, okay, that's the answer. Right, right. So you now walk back to the question, how much do we invest in now? And for what ownership? Ownership is a very important construct. And, you know, and I think now with massive liquidity and the like, people are just trying to get as much capital into deals and, they're not really caring as much on ownership because everybody's sort of really on money and invested capital. Mm. But ownership is an important construct for managers because it's a fundamental key to your fund returns. And so let me walk through that with this example. So we now know the outcome is 300 million. We now know the company needs to get to like 35 or 40 million in revenues to get to that kind of outcome. And then, of course, the math now says, hey, you know, we are actually going to have to raise three times for that outcome to happen, mm. which is which is fine. So if I buy 10% of this company, right, again, this is, again, where the valuation happens. If I buy 10% of this company, I have a $50 million fund, so I'll write a million-dollar check. So now the check size that's working for, that's supposed to work for me here to drive some measure of, of decent returns is a million bucks. Now, the three fund raising transactions after that, right? So series A, B, C after the seed. Now, what's interesting is that if you assume that you're not actually investing in ProRata, which is your follow-on, right? You're probably going to get down to around 5 6% mm, mm-hmm. from the 10 that you invested in. So you will own that. And let's just assume it's 5% that you're going to own, right? Which then means that in a... $300 million exit, you end up with 15. Hmm. Hmm. Remember, you started with one. <laughs> right. So it's a 15x. You're one third of the way to returning one X of the 50 million. Wow. With a $300 million exit. Wow. Which I know lots of people will kill for. Right, right, right. So then that's the math, right? So you're now saying, and you, you know, you ask all the right questions. Like, what would this company need to do for this check to be a fund returner, right? And for our $1 million check at the onset to be a fund returner, it will need to do easily, it needs to be exit of a billion. Hmm. And those are the facts. Yeah, those are the facts. Because you end up with 5%. Your fund was 50 5% of a billion is 50 million. Those are the facts. There's no escaping. So that's the reason why we're saying you know, humans don't scale. So venture firms, they are, they are always constrained by the number of humans they have, mm-hmm. you know, as investors. So every deal you do as a member of a VC firm, right, has to really be underwritten, not just by the cash, but by your time. Right. And focus and effort. And so when I look at this deal, I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be a problem because it's the standard deal is going to necessarily work hard. Now, there is something you can change in the actual equation that could do very different. And that's the valuation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you came in at five and you owned 20, then everything sort of changes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Let's just assume you end up at a 10% ownership stake 
at the exit of 300, then you get 30. Now you're 60% of the way to returning the fund. If you own 10% and that company got to a billion because you started at 20% ownership, you've returned 2x the fund. So as valuations go up, they make it increasingly harder for fund managers to even perform. Now, someone can argue that valuations are going up, but so are outcomes, like right? the range of outcomes, right? But show me these outcomes. <laughs> exactly. The outcomes are changing in the U.S., in Asia, slowly but steadily in India, more slow, less steady. But show me the outcomes. Right. And so it is... It is a complex and multivariate problem that you have to solve in, in figuring out whether the, the business makes sense, whether the market conditions make sense, and then how to manipulate is not necessarily the right word, but make the, the right decisions to make it make sense for your fund. But obviously, some variables have more, more weight, uh, more heft than others. And I think it was you, actually, who said that... Basically, returns are made on the price of entry. And so not to, not to kind of reduce every, everything to getting the price of entry right, but it seems like all other things being equal, if you screw that up, it could potentially be part of the difference between being underwater and being on your way to being a top quartile fund manager. I couldn't have said it better. Again, real talk, very sobering, but... <laughs> It's, I, I personally think it's really important to break things down in very real terms. So one last question before we start to wrap up, or maybe it's two questions, question and a half. So you alluded to the fact that once certain boxes are checked, you start to look at the next stage. So who's available to continue to invest? And if the answer is X, and in this case, X was 300 million, 300 million, what decisions do you have to make? But how do you actually go about leaning into an exit? I mean, is it something that you attempt to orchestrate or support as an investor? Is it something that's more opportunistic? How does that work? And then finally, in terms of extracting the cash, uh, for la lack of a better way to put it, I, I, I mean, I guess historically or traditionally, you're supposed to be getting um, an IPO event, an M&A event of some kind. But I think you've made arguments for something that basically follows a life cycle of the capital and is rooted in cash flow. So the first part of the question is, how do you structure the exit? And the, the second part of the question is, realistically, what should that exit look like in terms of money back? Okay, so I think to the first question, if I understand you correctly, what I have found historically in my career is that when you start shopping a deal, if you're shopping a, a, a portfolio company, then... There's a calculus around that to the effect that maybe the company isn't going to be on a super steep growth trajectory anymore. It could be a better fit being acquired or joining forces with another similar company. So those are things that as a board with the founders and CEO, you're sort of doing that analysis. But fundamentally, the founders have a good sense of where they want to go and what that path will look like. And as an investor, one of your fundamental roles you have is you give advice, sometimes unsolicited, but you give advice and then you step out of the way, right? Because these founders are going to drive these businesses. Right. And, and that advice can be a, look, we've, we've done as much as we can. We're not able to sort of convince the market to raise more money. So what are the key options that we have right now? And maybe we need to go shop that, whether you go hire a banker or you reach out to folks in adjacencies and say, look, there's an opportunity to come together. Let's let's talk about it. So for us as, as an investor, board member, those are the kind, those are the types of activities that we would engage in. But we take a cue from the, the CEO and, and, the, and the founder. So we'll do the work, right? We'll run around, we'll, we'll lean on our networks, we'll identify potential merger candidates. That's something that we will continue to do. It's fundamentally just being a fiduciary, right? So, right. so that's really the key thing in terms of thinking how you get into your liquidity. To the second question. So one of the things about that instead of deal structures is that many folks in Africa continue to piggyback on deal structures 
in other markets, right? So whether it's the Valley or Asia and the like. And those markets historically have depended on M&A or IPOs or DPOs or today SPACs, right, to drive exits and liquidity. These are all things that we haven't actually really seen in, in Africa. Right. But because everybody wants to be founder friendly and no one wants to sort of say, oh, we're going to do, in quotes, weird structures, everybody sort of ends up going to market with these deal terms that essentially can leave an investor hanging if these businesses do well, they're cash flow generating businesses, but there is no mechanism in the deal documents to exit outside of maybe IPO and M&A. Right. And, and when you bring these things up, people are like, well, that's not founder friendly. But the real issue here is, should you be friendly or should you be fair? Right. Hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and when you sort of introduce the concept of fairness, then you're looking for balance. So what's investor friendly and what's founder friendly and what's investor fair and what's founder fair? You'll find that. And that's why I think when I talked about this, you, know, you see this with private equity firms, right? Private equity firms have much shorter timelines to mess around with. They bring in very structured deals. And if you don't start to show a path for them to get some money out within three or four years, it's going to be a problem, right? And so they, they create these structures whereby dividends, especially from companies that have free cash flow, are a way to start to get some of those invested monies back into the hands of the investor. And dividends generally for high growth companies don't really make any sense mm-hmm. because you, you want as much of that cash flow reinvested in growth. Right? And so that's and that that totally makes sense. But at some point in time when the growth doesn't exist or has tapered quite dramatically, then you're now thinking, okay, there's cash on this balance sheet. And I'd like to see some of that cash divide up amongst the investors. And so that's one form of exit. And there are private equity firms that have sat on on cap tables for 10 years and and returned 2x mm. just off of dividends. Right. Right. And so maybe that's not necessarily a, a classic set of comparison with venture-backed companies, but those are types of non-traditional exits that can actually matter, right? If you're able to return sort of two, three X in a seven, eight year period, that puts you at a 20% IRR, give or take, which is really, really, really good. So those are the types of things. But in a market like today where there are SPACs, we're still seeing the SPAC phenomenon sort of make its way to Africa. I think I've seen a couple, the former Credit Suisse CEO started one. I've seen a couple that are focused on commodities. I think I saw another one started out by, by some folks in Asia mm. looking for sort of consumer businesses that are African. So hopefully there'll be more of the stack activity. And, and my view is, I think that if we start to get some volume in SPACs that focus on Africa, then maybe a few more of these startups start thinking more seriously about consolidating so that they become even more interesting targets for a SPAC to acquire. Mm, That's such an interesting point because you really are starting to see the same business in multiple or, well, sometimes even the same business in the same market, but certainly the same business in multiple markets. So if you think about like SME enablement, for example, like that business is showing up in multiple countries across the continent. The question starts to become, well, there, there are lots of questions to ask there, but yeah, the idea of incentivizing consolidation is is a really important one. Ironically, when Kamath Palapatiya was talking about Hedda Sophia, and I don't remember when that was, two or three years ago. Again, as a layperson, I was totally confused because I was thinking there's this Valley guy talking about, and at that point I thought holding companies and SPACs were the same, <laughs> and they are not. But in any case, I was thinking... So this guy in Silicon Valley is talking about holding companies, but meanwhile, fund managers on the continent can't do hold companies because they can't get LP. Well, I shouldn't generalize so much, but they have a hard time getting LPs to buy into that structure. That's problematic. But I think to your point, 
we're going to have to get over the hurdle and, and, and make these things start to make sense if you want to see appropriate exits. So wrapping up here, as you probably know, part of what we're doing here at the Trajectory Africa is to map the trajectory of African tech in D.C. So I'd like to I'd like to ask you where you think all this is heading and what you'd identify as key indicators first. And then secondly, what we're also doing here is also potentially crowdsourcing the soundtrack of African BC and tech. So to that end, I'd like you to share your proposed or suggested track and why you are suggesting it. So, so a soundtrack or just a song? Good question. Um, typically, I've been asking about songs, but if there's a whole soundtrack that you feel strongly about, you are welcome. Okay. I think one of the best soundtracks I've ever heard was one Babyface did many years ago. I think it was for a movie, and he wrote and produced, I think, all the songs on it. And there were, I believe, a whole bunch of artists. I think there was Brandy, it may have been Whitney, it may have been Mary J. Blige. So Babyface did that, Waiting to Exhale. It's probably the most remarkable soundtrack, in part because what he did was to write songs that were vastly different, but really customized to each individual artist. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's very similar to investing in Africa. Interesting. There's a, lot, there's a lot more custom work than people think. It's not a homogenous market. It's a really powerful insight. I like that a lot. So yeah, that will be my, that will be my soundtrack. Challenge accepted. And then in terms of the trajectory, what are your thoughts? So we, we see the numbers, right? I think I was looking at uh, one of the, it was, it was Maxim who keeps track of sort of dollars invested in, in, in Africa and the like. And I think he pointed out that as of the first half of this year, more dollars had coming this year, first half than the entire 2019. So if that is a signal of trajectory, it's very strong and very steep. And I think that's very important. But again, when you sort of unpack it, you're really thinking about distribution. How much is going into sort of smaller companies? Mm. A lot of that money is being sort of eaten up. The air has been taken out of the room by some of the larger players, especially in fintech. So right. I never get excited by sort of the aggregate dollars. I'm much more interested in the distribution. And so I think trajectory, very positive. It'll do more. One concern, I think, is that there is phenomenal amount of global liquidity. The U.S. is powering a lot of that. And if for any reason, global economies, especially in the emerging markets, have to put the brick on growth and because of inflation risk and the like, a lot of this capital that is looking for yield, not necessarily high risk yield, but yield will, will disappear. And, right. and so I think that even with the trajectory, I'm still not 100% confident that there is true conviction behind the dollars. Mm. And I mean, that's always a wait and see thing, but we'll have to see. I've been through sort of two, two economic recessions and, and it's the behavior during the recession that tells you a lot about the investor and not the behavior when everybody's right and everybody's making money hand over fist and, and it seems to be really easy for everybody to make money. And so they're sort of more interested in maybe higher risk assets. So excited, but cautious. Yeah, that's one of my favorite phrases, being cautiously optimistic. Let's see. <laughs> Let's see what, what happens. But I think what's really, really useful about that perspective, and it's been a consistent theme throughout this conversation, is that, you know, look at the top line, but you've got to delve beneath the surface and grapple with the complexity. There's a way in which there's lots to see, but you have to be willing to put in the effort and have the conviction, put in the work to basically locate and dig up the gold, for lack of a better way of putting it. 
So I think we've done it. That concludes this installment of How to Engineer a Successful Exit in African Markets, courtesy of Agosa Moigui. Thanks so much for coming on, Agosa. I really enjoyed having you as a guest artist for Track 8. Thanks to all of you who are listening, and I hope you join us again for Track 9. You can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts. Until next time.